0: in-office studios of his eye care practices in Nashville, Tennessee. It's As I See It with Dr. Jeff Kegaris, your source for eye care education and receiving
1: the type of patient relationship you deserve. It is time for a
0: patient revolution. And now, your host, Dr. Jeff Kegeris. So welcome to As I See It. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Kegeris Today, we want to focus on an interesting topic least I think interesting to me and one you might say what metallurgy and I care you see prior to optometry I majored in metallurgical engineering did a lot of work in corrosion research with metals toilet bowls all the exciting stuff and glamorous stuff Um, and I'm kind of a guy that likes to draw connections connections that there may be some pretty interesting elements of of uh, certain professions that we also have in eye care and how they might match together or might be different because I think that that creates a, a world of connection and uh, today to add a little more depth to this field I want to actually talk to the uh, best metallurgy engineer I know and certainly the best father that I know or anybody could have and that's my dad Ron Kegeris who is on the podcast with me today dad welcome to the show thank you thank you for inviting me this is an honor <laughs> i know that you have so much going on in these times of corona when you're not allowed outside because as you've said you're an endangered species is that right yep <laughs> so um but i also know that you're busy all the time doing lots of things and certainly part of that is uh, Sharing some of your brain power with me, so I want to just talk to you about a couple of things. Um, first of all, you are in Summerby here in Franklin, and it seems like they've done a pretty good job of of protecting all of the residents in the retirement center. Uh, what what have been some of the things that they've done that you feel like are really really good? They've done an outstanding
1: job, really. <clears throat> when you think about the coronavirus. It runs rampant in facilities like independent living, assisted living, and things like that, if you let it. But what they've done here at Summerby is they initially said nobody is going to be able to be out of their room to meet in common areas. So that uh, means, you know, in the lobby or sitting around a table or something like that. So we basically are restricted to our rooms. Everybody is is supposed to wear a mask. When they visit me, for example, we're not allowed to eat in the dining room anymore. They deliver the meals and when when they deliver the meals, they provide it to me with masks on so as to prevent any opportunity for them to lay that on. The other thing that they've done is they have made sure that no people will enter except caregivers and caregivers must wear masks and must enter through the door, get their temperature taken, and then they can go to their patients. Relatives, loved ones, and so forth are still remain
0: outside. Yeah, we're restricted I to think... either FaceTiming or or parking in the parking lot and waving at you on the porch, right?
1: <laughs> so, waving and yelling. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's
0: our <laughs> <laughs> So I want to move on. So again, a real credit to Summerby and all of the uh, independent living centers that have done a really, really good job taking care of their customers, their uh, the people that live in their facilities and taking good care of them during this time. We're glad that the that the standards are, it looks like the, the first wave has gone gone past us and is dying down, and we're hopefully going to be able to return to more normal, while it may not be exactly the same as before. Uh, we'll still be keeping everybody very, very safe, and uh, I think it's a real testament to the good leadership that they have over there at Summerby. But I want to move on to the topic today, which is metallurgy, and I want to start with safety. First thing I've noticed is that in most hospitals and many of our eye care and health ambulatory care centers, we have an awful lot of metal around, and most of it is supposedly stainless steel. Can you tell me (laughs) from my back in my days as a metallurgist, but also for those people out there, um, what's the difference between steel and stainless steel? What makes it stainless? Well, steel is actually a mixture of carbon
1: and manganese in you know, relatively small doses. No, no iron in mixture, that? Well, and iron, obviously, <laughs> Thanks well, for reminding me. That's all right. I mean, <laughs> We used to call it rust and bust, but anyway. <laughs> that's
0: coming from Stainless an aluminum steel expert steel.
1: there. <laughs> Stainless steel is a mixture of iron and... Uh, nickel and chromium. It's the most common stainless steel is 18% nickel and 8% chrome. So you see it still has quite a bit of steel or iron in it, but it's got a heavy dosage of nickel and chromium. That gives it anti-rust properties and makes it very, very bright when you, when you produce it. From a surface standpoint,
0: does it weaken it at all, or is it relatively the same strength as as strictly iron, if you will?
1: Well, it's it's, it's a strengthening elements, but they're primary. I mean, you can get a lot stronger iron than just mixing it with nickel and chromium. But the most important feature is it doesn't rust. Okay, and of course, iron rusts.
0: And is that, is that, do you think, one of the main reasons that it's used and formed into so many products, let's say in a hospital, because, I mean, gosh forbid, you don't want oxidation and rusty handrails. That certainly not, doesn't look appealing.
1: Well, the rust is one thing, but I think the most important thing is good marketing mm-hmm. and cost. I mean, you can have aluminum iron rails and things like that that can be just as bright, doesn't oxidize as rapidly but it's more expensive and stainless steel stays stainless for a long long time okay and it's cheaper and people have been beating the drum for that sort of a thing it just looks cleaner
0: yeah you know what i mean yeah i think that's the key you know, one of the things that we're facing right now is we're looking for anything, surfaces have been transferring viruses and bacteria for a long time. And now with corona being so um, infectious, if you will, having a, a, a an R-naught that we call that, uh, that is that is uh, pretty significant, you know, it's, it's transferability. Um, now we're thinking about not just you know, do we wear a mask when I'm talking to somebody and people have gloves, et cetera, and how long have I been within their social distancing sphere? But we're thinking about all the surfaces. We're cleaning surfaces like never before, and all of a sudden those things that we thought were naturally clean and safe may not have been all along. And uh, that includes stainless steel, bed rails, and uh, anything you touch, doesn't it?
1: That's right. As a matter of fact, the coronavirus as soon as the coronavirus hits copper, it's almost instantaneously removed. It's kind of like that commercial where the guy sunburned and the gnat comes and hits his shoulder and goes zip. (laughs) And the reason for that, it's interesting, (laughs) copper is kind of an interesting element because in the Egyptian days, a long time ago, copper was more precious than gold. And one of the reasons they think is the fact that copper did a good job of protecting them against uh, viruses. We, they didn't call them viruses, but
0: things, bacteria and viruses and things like that. Evil, and so, evil spirits and the bad gods, right? That's
1: right. And so some people say that King Solomon's mines that we've learned so much about were mines of copper, not mines of gold, because it was so important to add tin or zinc or something like that to strengthen it and make it bronze remember stone age bronze
0: age iron age yeah so let's talk about copper for a second as an element because I think of copper as one very expensive and um, is that because of a scarcity is that because it has so many uses that there's a high demand do you have any, any thoughts on that that's a good question
1: I think copper is not uh, not an element that is highly in demand except for certain applications. Other metals do just as good a job. Copper is the best metal for heat transfer or electrical transfer. Aluminum comes second and then comes steel and some others, but copper is fairly prevalent. It's just a little bit different manufacturing process and it's generally very very soft unless you alloy it pretty heavily with those other elements that i mentioned
0: well so let's talk about alloys because that's a term that may not be familiar to everybody so when we look at something that's copper it may not be 100 pure copper right it could be uh that's right so when you alloy it how what what does that mean you're mixing something else in it, in it
1: yeah, let's take uh, bron- let's take bronze for example. You can mix uh, zinc or tin with it. It's still copper. It's still like brass. That's heavily laden with copper, but it's got some other elements in it during the melting process, and that makes it. And then when you want to polish it, it's just bright. It's always got the red color because uh-huh. it's a transition element, but it's just very very decorative but it's more expensive than other other uh, metals
0: so do you think that the uh the copper wiring then would be different than the copper we might put on a roof in a house or you know you see some of these that that they oxidize from a really bright shiny copper on a house to a kind of a dull darker brown type of thing is that happening with the copper wire also or are those different types of copper alloys
1: I think, I'm not positive on that, but I think that the wiring is uh, used with a coating on it, for example, Mm -hmm. that prevents the oxidation. The oxidation of copper turns turquoise in color, but it doesn't affect the uh, properties or anything like that. It just affects
0: what it looks like. Okay. So on that property, we talked about antibacterial properties that copper has... Is copper the only metal that has been found to have some of those that you know of?
1: Yes, it seems that way. And it seems like the scientists seem to indicate that they think it comes from copper's atomic structure. You know, you have a nucleus and then you have rings surrounding the nucleus which have electrons in it. Copper is one of three elements that has one electron on the outer shell. Now they like to have eight, at least. Uh-huh. So it's always looking for an opportunity to either find an oxidation uh, activity or a reduction activity so it can give up or take on additional electrons. And so they think that as the, is the reason that it is a little bit more impervious
0: than other metals. So it's that free electron, that it, that's kind of the bug zapper for bugs? Is that in, in, a, in a layperson's actually, way of thinking about it? That's well put. Yeah. <laughs> I'd never thought of it quite that way. <laughs> so can we, if that's the case, Dad, do you think that we could mix copper into aluminum, into iron make an alloy where we have low levels of copper that would still have some antibacterial properties? Or do you think it really needs to be the predominant element from your understanding and reading?
1: Well, number one, I think it needs to be the predominant element. Okay. And I think that's been proven. They have run some studies, for example, uh, in hospitals using uh, stainless steel versus copper bed rails and things like that. And they found without a doubt that copper bed rails... Are much more impervious to any infection lasting on it at all it's been very very well recognized in that regard but it's expensive yeah you know and and it doesn't look as clean as uh, stainless uh-huh.
0: steel does that's interesting isn't it because in this in this era of safety it's not only that you're being safe but you have to have the perception of safety also right And so that's exactly right. The irony there is that a stainless steel bed rail may be not as certainly not as antibacterial resistant but it may look cleaner because it's shiny as opposed to if you had it in copper and you'd say oh that doesn't look clean but it may actually have better properties. so
1: that's exactly right. Of course remember, Stainless steel is more than just 18% nickel and 8% chromium. There are a lot of different variations depending upon what properties you're searching for in the final product. But the most common one is 18.8.
0: Okay, so you could put other things in there that would give it more uh, ductility or more uh, shine, if you will, strength, things yeah. like that. Is that right? Okay. Yes, as a matter of fact, when you think
1: about how soft copper is, you can actually add it to aluminum to make it a stronger alloy, huh. a stronger product. In fact, aluminum, copper, magnesium alloys are very prevalent and predominant on 747 wings.
0: Huh. Interesting. Interesting. So, well, let's, let's talk about that. That moves us into another one. So we've talked about copper and its antibacterial properties that have long been known, but cost may be a restrictive factor. However, there's a big cost in always having to spray stuff and clean off whatever rails they have. So that may be something that we see more uh, evaluated in hospitals and, and in practices like ours for materials. But every metal whether it's iron or aluminum, copper, et cetera, has a has a different strength. Is that right? If you're as a metallurgist, and how, how does a metallurgist, someone who's an expert in metals, how does one say this is strong or this is not strong? Obviously, it's something well, you, more than that. You,
1: you, you actually take a sample from the product and stretch it until it breaks, and then you determine what that strength is. It's a typical stress strain diagram. The more stress you put on it, the more it strains. And it runs into two limits. It runs into an elastic limit. In other words, you can it's like a rubber band. You can stretch it and then relax it. it goes back to its original state. That's a that's a elastic limit. You can stretch it to that. If you stretch it too far, it breaks. If you stretch metals too far, they break. Some of them will stretch for a long way and that's called exceeding the yield of strength. goes up to the yield strength and you let the stress off. It goes back to its original strength. But then as you apply more stress to it, then it will go beyond that yield strength or plastic elastic limit And goes into a plastic limit, and that then, when you let the stress off, you've actually
0: deformed the metal. It won't return to its previous shape then. It will not. That's exactly right. So you've got so you add strain, you add stress, or strain, which causes this to stretch. Different metals stretch at a different at a different stress, but some of them then they start to stretch, and they'll stretch for a long, 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 long time. Others will only stretch a little bit, and at some point they go snap, right? They break. That's correct. And what's that point called? That's one one of the disadvantages of
1: carbon fiber composites on aircraft is it doesn't have a very long yield opportunity. So when it exceeds its stress limit, it breaks, whereas aluminum will stretch a lot longer. And, of course, the designers design for that factor. Yeah, okay. And it tells how how soft it is, how long it's going to go before it breaks.
0: So what we're trying to understand in the eye is perhaps do different eyes have a different stretch factor, maybe even break factor. Maybe that break factor is somewhat that back surface of the optic nerve. And so we're measuring this called corneal hysteresis now. And what we're seeing are some interesting things. We're seeing that a lower stretch is associated more with glaucoma. Correct? Some of the data seems to indicate that. Wow. I I wouldn't think that... (laughs) The greater the amount of stretch, the more opportunity for glaucoma. I would think so, too. I would think that a higher, but, you know, that's why I'm trying to understand this and see if it correlates with metals, because it seems like sometimes if you could, if the eye didn't stretch, let's say that the front of the eye doesn't stretch, okay, then it's stiffer. Is that right? That would be correct. And if the front of the eye is stiffer, then that eye pressure would be transferred from away from the, st- from the stiff part. And it would go to the weaker part of the eye, which in this case is the optic nerve, right? That would make sense. So if that's
1: the case... However, yeah, go ahead. What about the difference in the thickness of the cornea. Does that have any effect on the interocular pressure? Because I would think a thicker cornea would allow you to withstand more pressure than a
0: thinner one. You know, that's very interesting because one of the measurements that we take is called pechymetry. That's a big fancy eye doctor word for thickness of your cornea, and people were born with a thinner or a thicker cornea. What's interesting about that is that all of our measuring devices, for the most part, have been calculated. When we measure your eye pressure, it's assuming everybody has a normal average cornea thickness. And so one of the things Uh that we found over time is that some people have a thinner cornea and some people have a thicker cornea, therefore that the measured eye pressure we have needs to be adjusted for what the true eye pressure in the eye is. Now, we as eye doctors know that, but what's even more important about that, so in other words, maybe I measure an eye pressure that is 18, but if somebody has a super thin cornea, the calculation, actually, my true in the eye pressure may be closer to 21 or 22. So just what we tell you may not be the true in the eye pressure, but it's a good good average. Um, Now, you would think, wow, that's really important to know. Yeah, it is, but it's hard to really know how many points difference it is. So that's really been studied, and what we found that's very interesting is Forget all of that with eye pressure. When we've looked at people's anatomy, people that have thin corneas are at higher risk to develop glaucoma. People that have thick corneas are at lower risk to develop glaucoma. The average cornea, by the way, is a half a millimeter thick, 0.555, if you will, or 555 microns, we call that, right around that area. So when we're talking about thin corneas, we're talking exactly. about 520 microns or less, and the thicker cornea being, say, 590 or 600 microns or more. If you got a thick cornea, 20, that's a 000. good protective factor. What's that?
1: Yeah, I would think so. Is there any way that you can develop a thicker cornea?
0: That's a good and question. are
1: there any side effects to that?
0: You know, we can develop a thinner cornea when we do laser surgery or other... Uh, procedures oh, like yeah. that. And and so we're wondering if that's the case, that gets into this issue of, is that just something we're born with, uh, the thickness and the thinness? And is that an isolated variable? Or does that have correlation to the back of the optic nerve? Maybe that lamina that we talk about, if it's thin on the cornea, it's thin in the lamina versus being thick on the cornea and thick in the lamina. If you have a thin lamina, maybe that's more susceptible to damage. And that's why some people can have a very normal eye pressure 16 and still develop glaucoma now we can't go in there and biopsy your lamina or you'll go blind and you won't like the procedure at all and that's not worth the studying but that's a it's a big area of research right now um getting it would back
1: here to me that you'd be able to determine a factor to factor in thickness or thinness of a of a cornea
0: well we we do it hasn't been well accepted as a universal standard oh well if it's uh. 20 microns thinner you need to add one point th- something like that so i'd say it's uh, like actually, anything in a lot of things in medicine there's a general understanding that that you know depending upon the pechymetry, maybe the pressure i'm measuring could be higher or lower it, truly in the eye so eye doctors have to keep that in consideration when treating glaucoma and glaucoma suspects i think the thing that's Real significant to me and the reason I wanted to talk to you about stretching and breaking is that this whole hysteresis thing, one of the things we see is that hysteresis may not may be a separate biomedical property altogether, not related to thinness or thickness. It has to do with its within its stromal strength, if you will. How likely is it to bend or how light, or how stiff is it? And um, So what we have definitely seen is that corneal hysteresis, its ability to bend, is, um, is very different in patients that have glaucoma. In fact, it's lower. So if that's the case, we have a low hysteresis, a low level of bending, and that's a higher risk of glaucoma compared to normal people. And so, that
1: would make sense to me from a metallurgical standpoint.
0: And why would that make sense if?
1: Well, if you have very, if you have an alloy that has very little uh, yield or elongation, in other words, it's uh, the difference between the ultimate tensile strength and the ultimate yield strength are very close. Then obviously, when you stretch it or stress it, it's going to snap whereas an alloy that has more elongation or more hysteresis would go for a while before it actually breaks.
0: Aha. So if we're talking about the eye and maybe that lamina being a very critical element, if I don't have a lot of stretch factor, I'm going to break sooner, right? Exactly. So that may be, now while we don't see the eye blowing out and breaking, but that could be this correlate Um, And now it kind of has come full circle for me. This is a difficult thing to think about, but now maybe you've helped me with that association. The low ability or low hysteresis of an eyeball, which we can now measure, may mean that it's not very forgiving to a given intraocular pressure, and therefore damage could occur sooner.
1: That's a great way to put it, yes. Yes.
0: So here, here I'm looking at all of this data as an eye doctor, but I've needed a metallurgist to help me understand the stress-strain relationship of the eyeball. So, <laughs> so, so thanks for your. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> you know, it's one of those things you always told me. You know, your dad's going to look a lot smarter as you get older, and that continues to be that way. So, hey, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> been a learning experience for me <laughs> I appreciate that well I know that you know you, the, the last podcast you did went viral with coach Mike Vrabel of the Tennessee Titans and I know you had to lower your standards and and your uh, you know the, the, the fee for you to be on this program to uh, be able to talk to your son about eyes and medals but I really do appreciate your time um, we try very very hard to uh to make eye care not only just during Corona times, but to to make eye care and eye health as safe as we can to keep people um, to keep people healthy and being able to have good vision all of their life. And the properties of mechanical strength, both of metals and the eye care, are important because we're striving to educate our patients all of the time to help them have an experience that is more than just good eye care, but a great overall healthcare experience. Thank you, Dad, Ron Kegris, for sharing your expertise on metals. We'll talk about other things in the future.
1: Thank you. I'm glad I can help.